Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with Dr. Suzanne Squires, who's a family physician in Edmonton area of Alberta. She has spent over a decade in the service of families and taken a particular interest in mental health of both young people and adults. She has some great advice for anyone who is concerned about the mental health of a student or a colleague. Mental health is an important topic, and I hope that our conversation helps others to reach out to those in need. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at intersectioned. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Suzanne Squires. Hello, Dr. Squires. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to start off with with maybe a little bit of background and how you became a physician and and maybe some of the educational experiences that you had that led you to becoming uh, a family physician. Okay. Well, I say that um, medicine is a disease that runs in my family. <laughs> my father was a family doctor, so it was very close to home. And my I come from a family of four. I'm the youngest. And my older brother is 12 years older than me, and he also went into medicine. So it wasn't necessarily a lifelong dream. It was just very familiar. And I can remember some young experiences of going to the hospital with my dad on rounds. And I used to like to sit and see the babies in the nursery and think, I wonder how I could ever work with those babies. Um, and then as I grew up and I started thinking about um, what I wanted to do for schooling, I would say it was my brother who was more influential. He had gone through schooling more recently and he went to the University of Alberta and he strongly recommended that I give it a try. He had He really enjoyed being a doctor. So I have to say it was a, a large amount of family influence. And so I moved from Cranbrook and I came to the U of A where I did two years of undergraduate sciences. And then I was able to apply into medicine. At that time, they still took a few people after a couple of years. So I ended up landing in medical school at the age of 19, which is pretty young <laughs> looking back. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you'd probably been one of the youngest ones there. Yes. There was one other classmate who was two years younger than I was. Yeah. So we were the babies of the class. Now, uh, when you get into that, yeah, I've never been through medical school, but I imagine there's there's a range of different specializations. You work in family medicine. What was it that drew you more to 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 working with families as opposed to perhaps specializing in something else? Um, I think the best word to describe it would be the relational aspect of it and the longevity that you have with patients. So again, I have to say it was familiar to me with my dad being a family doctor in a small town. It just made sense to me that you got to know people over time and you got to become a part of their stories and help treat them. And I, that was reinforced in medical school. Um, you know, medical school, the undergrad or the, the, the degree is four years. And during that time you have about 
at the time it was structured, you'd have two years of kind of lecture-based learning. And then two years where you get to hit the rotations on the wards. Mm -hmm. And so you go through uh, the different specialties. So a lot of them are hospital-based, like internal medicine and surgical specialties. But you do get to also go to clinics and see family doctors and other clinic-based specialists. So it gives you a, a, a small chance to see what the different specialties are like. But I always have liked relational components of work, and I always knew that to um, see people over time uh, is the way we can kind of make a difference in family medicine and get to know the whole family structure and how that applies to illness. So family medicine to me was a great opportunity to to share that passion. Yeah. One of the areas that um, you've been really involved in is mental health. And I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit more deeply about this topic. What, what are you seeing in trends around mental health, especially in young people? Um, when you're thinking about, you know, schools and teachers and stuff like that, do you think it's increasing? Do you think it's decreasing? Is it just different? And, and maybe why, why you think some of the trends are happening? Um, yeah, so that's a really great question. And I think there's researchers who try to look at these questions and take data. Uh, what I can speak to is, you know, experience of practicing for 15 years now. Um, what I've really noticed in the last three years specifically is just a whole lot more people coming to me asking for help with their mental health. Um, particularly in youth. Um, so sometimes it's parents asking me for help with their younger children. Um, uh, youth coming in and asking for help in the teenage range on their own, uh, even adults talking more about it. So uh, why do I think that is? I've seen some studies that show, um, you know, these smartphones that we all have in our hands now that are so helpful. There has been an increase in mental health issues and behavioral issues um, since the advent of the smartphone. And whether or not that's a correlation or cause and effect, that's for the researchers to figure out for us. But there may be something to do with this this device that seems so helpful, but can also change the way we re we relate to one another at its mm -hmm. core. I think um, the other issue is just a willingness to talk a bit about it. And that's probably more of a positive step in my mind, is people are more willing to ask for help, to admit that they're having issues. They're more willing to consider it as a possibility when they are having issues. So I see a more openness to, and people just wanting to get help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I would absolutely say that's positive. And we've seen I mean, I'm a layperson in schools, but I mean, we see things like the bell, let's talk and, and we're talking about mental health a lot more than, than it seems we used to. Mm -hmm. and so that's really mm -hmm. great. Now, one of the complaints I hear working in a school system is that access to service for young people around mental health is, is just not keeping up. And, and I know that most places, at least in our community, um, have had an increased population growth, but, but we also see, you know, all of the different needs, whether it be actual mental health or whether it be they're more apt to talk about it. What changes would you like to see made or maybe what are some of the things that you're looking at doing differently to to be able to to keep up with this growing demand? Um, yeah, I, I echo that, that more people are asking for help and I'm sure people are sensing that uh, the system hasn't 
been able to keep up with the demand. And this, this happens in any economy when the increased need for demand, the system has to start to meet it. Um, and we're not a, you know, healthcare, you don't think of it necessarily as an economy. We're in a public healthcare system here in Canada. And part of the problem, I think too, comes down to the amount of education we get in healthcare around children's mental health. Um, some people don't feel comfortable treating children's mental health issues. It's actually a relatively new specialty. Mm-hmm. I've been meeting with some child psychiatrists as well in terms of changing how we plan and promote services. And there's only 400 child psychiatrists in all of Canada. So if you think that one in five people have a mental health disorder and 70% of those people start with symptoms in childhood and people start wanting to talk about this more and asking for help more, which is a good thing, 400 child psychiatrists is not going to be able to meet the needs. And so we have to expand our healthcare service providers with the knowledge and the ability to start helping people. And so with me and family medicine, there's a lot more family doctors <laughs> than there are child psychiatrists, but not a lot of our training actually equips us to deal with some of the really tricky mental health issues that people bring to us. And I find what happens when healthcare providers or anyone gets asked to do things beyond their scope or beyond what they feel really capable of seeing. Either you just really don't like doing it. And so you close your doors and you really, you, you refer out, you just don't really talk about it. You're uncomfortable. That's not a part of my practice. Or, um, you go out there and you try to get those skills. So to be honest, part of my project and part of my, um, challenge to myself has been to try to better meet the needs that patients are presenting to me, educate myself better, and also just raise awareness within the whole system that we have to work together better. We have to share our information better. Um, and as communities, we need to all all work together because we need to be able to talk to each other and help each other in healthy ways as well. Um, the, the medical system can do some really wonderful things, especially when the, the diseases are obvious and presentable, but as much as we can do in our communities to positively help people out, um, that's going to help too. Yeah. Now, I've heard of some of the things that you're looking, speaking about a community-based approach to perhaps help some of those um, physicians who are uncomfortable speaking about mental health. Tell me a little bit about the the youth hub and how you think that that might change service to to, to young people around mental health. Yes. Um, so through part of uh, my attempt to take a look in our community and see what we can do better for our youth who are asking for help. It's to try to coordinate some service delivery too. And so through my work with the um, Westview Primary Care Network, we actually applied for a grant to the government um, and the organization was called PolicyWise to open a youth hub. And apparently I've learned that these, this is an emerging trend that the government's been looking at as a way to meet he- mental health needs in youth. And so there's a few things that kind of compromise a youth hub it would be providing service to the age group of 11 to 25 year olds. Okay. Um, 
and kind of what's interesting about that is a lot of the traditional care ends at the age of 18. So if you've got school-based care or even in healthcare, if you're seeing a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist, a lot of them aren't even able to see anyone beyond the age of 18. And so then all the care gets transferred to adulthood. So it's an interesting age range to try to bridge that gap where people kind of fall off in service. And then it's a co-location of services. So um, it's looking at including primary care along with some basic counseling services and social services as well. That sounds uh, different um, and sounds like it might actually, yeah, kind of meet some of the needs of those kids. And, and you know, I <laughs> I spend a lot of time in my role with with students accessing services and, and, and that becomes an issue. It's they don't even have a family physician, perhaps. Um, but then all of a sudden they're willing to talk about some other issues. So I, I think that that's interesting and I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like. The other bit that I know from my role also is that is that oftentimes teachers are the people or the adults that know students best, and they can sometimes be the first people to recognize signs or of, of problems around mental health. What advice would you give to a teacher about broaching the subject of mental health with, the, with a younger person and perhaps their family? And what might you say would be the first steps? And, and that's not for, you know, to act as a therapist or act as a doctor. Where would you say they could go to, to begin maybe a journey around um, getting help with mental health? That's a really great question. And I completely agree with you. I think teachers are at the forefront of spending a lot of the daytime hours with students. And not only that, they're interacting with students and teaching them new material and seeing how kids react in that type of environment. And so, you know, I've gone and done some recent training in youth mental health, and we're talking a lot about assessments and how can we really know what's going on with youth. And when you're looking at mental health illness or mental illness, mental disorders, one of the criteria is that it greatly impacts the function of an individual. And for for kids, what we're looking at, um, where the two main areas of function, school and home. And when a child comes and sees us, we can try to get some information from the child themselves. We can hopefully get some information from the parents and what they're seeing, but there's this whole vast area of school. Mm -hmm. And so we're either getting it through the child or parents lens if we don't get some information from the schools. Um, and sometimes the information aligns where the child's behavior is the same in the home and at school. And sometimes it's quite different. So sometimes the teacher is seeing something that the parents aren't, or the parents are seeing something that the teachers aren't. And then we kind of have to look at that together and go, well, then what's happening in these different environments? Is this really a mental illness or is it the environment isn't, the child isn't able to thrive in this particular environment, whether that's the home or the school. So yeah, I think for a teacher who's showing concern about what's happening with a student, I can't. I can't pretend to be a teacher and say, this is how you should do it. Yeah. But um, I think being open and non-judgmental are two places you really have to start with some curiosity. Um, and because people can still be pretty defensive, as you know. <laughs> so if, you know, to start to speak to the student, to say what you're noticing, you know, I, I notice you're having a hard time sitting still and paying attention, or I notice you seem a bit sad, or I notice... Um, you know, you used to want to go out to recess and now you don't so much anymore. Is there something going on? 
And if you start with a non-judgmental, non-leading question, you can actually sometimes get a fair bit of information. And I think it's really important to talk to youth directly and try to try to get the story because sometimes we make up stories in our mind when we don't know what's going on and we see behavior. And so try your best not to jump to conclusions. And then and then I think it's important to communicate with the parent or guardian um, to get them involved and, and tell them what you're noticing as a teacher what you're concerned about. It's often around behavior, right? And then encouraging them to go to someone that they trust for help. So hopefully they're hooked up with a family doctor or primary care provider that they could bring this up with then. Um, and that just gets, you know, that just gets you started. Yeah. And so, yeah, it sounds like maybe the first stop, because that's often a question that I get, what do I go? Is this, is this something I'll go to my family doctor? Do I have to go to mental health? Do I have to go to, you know, uh, they just don't know where to to turn. And it sounds like what you're saying is that hopefully they've got a family physician and they can go to their family doctor first. Hey? Yeah, I would really encourage that and, you know, have a discussion with the family doctor to say that these are the concerns that you have as a parent. If you can find out a little bit more concern what the school has and the more information that you can bring, the more that the family doctor is then able to think about it and try to get you in touch with local resources, they should be a source of local resource help and some general healthcare questions. And maybe that your family doctor does feel confident and um, is able to sort of help you with some diagnosis and treatment suggestions. But if not, they should be able to refer you to a place that is. Um, so it should be a good first place to start or a pediatrician, if that's what you have as your primary care provider in your area. If you're seeing a pediatrician, definitely bring it up with your pediatrician. That's great. Um, I know that a lot of times uh, information sharing is kind of an issue and, and, and we talk about, you know, us supporting one another. What are some of the things that you see that, or some of the areas where schools might be able um, to better support the work that physicians do with the treatment of patients and students? Do you, can you recognize any places where we might work better together? Oh, for sure. And already I see teachers making lots of effort to help us. And hopefully we make even improved efforts to help teachers. Um, one of this idea is on some basic assessments. Um, for instance, in terms of looking into ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, this is something that often teachers will notice in the elementary years, um, that the child is very distractible, has a hard time sitting still, um, has a hard time staying focused on the classwork, sometimes is disruptive in their relationships with other kids. Um, and, and school really puts this to the test because mm -hmm. these kids have to focus and pay attention. Um, and so that information is very helpful. And there, we have ways of collecting that. There's some questionnaires that we can sometimes give. Um, and I'll give them to parents and then I'll say, Hey, can you get the teacher to fill this out too? Mm -hmm. So whenever that happens and it gets back to me, that's very helpful. The other place that I think um, teachers are very skilled in is is figuring out if the child needs some psychoeducational assessments or their learning problems. Because sometimes kids are having a hard time focusing or paying attention because they have a learning disability. And that's really hard for me as a physician to figure out. I really don't have the power to do that. So at the same time that they may be showing more signs of ADHD, they actually might be having dyslexia. 
and um, or they might have a math learning disability. And we're aware of some of those things. We're taught a little bit about them, but we are not taught how to diagnose them. And it's really through schools that those are done. And so those psychoed assessments can be really helpful when we notice problem behaviors with a student, but what's the root cause? Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to be co-investigators together. And and the teachers have the ability to do that. And the physicians have a different lens that they can hopefully work around to, to find out what's the root cause for this child. And that's really good information because oftentimes I think we put the physician up on a pedestal thinking that uh, you can triage all of these things and you'll get, you know, um, um, educational psychology assessments done and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and in reality, no, you have your role and maybe um, psychologists have a different role and it's kind of working in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, I love mm-hmm. that idea of partnership because we're both on the, uh, I think both of our end goal one of our end goals is to, to really help students. Yes, uh, definitely. Help. help them to be as healthy and to meet their potential. That's right. Um, I want to flip that because we know that dealing with anyone or helping anyone deal with their mental health can be tiring. And it can be taxing to the mental health of the adults. What tips would you have for adults who, who are concerned that, that their mental health might be in decline? Well, that's a really great question. Um, and I think it starts with a similar concept of asking for help. And it can, there's this thing called stigma around mental health. Um, and it can be hard to admit for some people that they're dealing with uh, concerns about their mental health. Sometimes I talk about emotional pain with people. There's physical pain and there's emotional pain and emotional pain is just as real is physical pain and it's not your fault that you're in pain. Um, and we need to talk about it. Uh, so asking for help is a step. I think looking at some of, you can be, you can be your own detective at times. So look at some of your habits. Um, am I falling into addictions? So am I drinking more than I should be? Did I start with drinking one glass of wine a week and now I'm drinking one glass of wine a night and now I'm up to three glasses and why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. Or um, there, you can get addictions to other things as well. And so there's usually some, again, emotional pain that you're trying to cope with. And if you're qu- trying to cope alone with it, you tend to get into some habits that can become problematic. If you can share that with someone you trust, sometimes you can get into better, healthier habits. So things like exercise, sleeping, um, communication skills, all those things make a difference in your, in your own mental health. And, you know, anxiety is a big thing these days. A lot of people are struggling with anxiety. And if you're concerned about your child's mental health, you know, I think most parents, I'm a parent, you're a parent, (laughs) most parents, what they want to see is their kid happy. They just want happy kids. And if your kid is struggling to be happy, you, that's really hard as a parent and you can quite quickly blame yourself and you can, you can kind of go down an old, your own spiral of pain around this. And so you have to look at still taking care of yourself in a way that is actually positive for you, that works for you. So that's a little bit individual for everyone. Some people need to go read a book for an hour and some people need to go on a walk with a friend. Um, some people need to get out and move their bodies and some people need to put less pressure on themselves. So it's very individual about self-care. But be aware that if you're if you're helping a loved one deal with a mental health issue, you are the main uh, provider in that person's life. 
there's a ton of weight on your shoulders and you, you can't crumple under it. Uh, so you really have to double down on your own self-care and make sure that, that you're getting the help that you need to. I think that's, I think that's good advice for both parents and for teachers, because when we're talking about our loved ones, I think that, uh, yeah, teachers, teachers care for their kids. And so mm-hmm. they feel many of the same things that parents do, perhaps not as intensely, but mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of similarities. One of the things I'm really interested uh, about what you're doing with this youth hub is you're also working with some software to leverage some technology in creating better patient care. Um, I find that interesting for a couple different ways, but maybe just talk to us about what you're hoping to create and why you think it might be helpful to use technology to actually increase health or, or how that might work. Yeah. Um, you know, we all interact with technology every day and sometimes it can be a main source of frustration for us when it doesn't work well. Um, but when it works well, it can be a huge help. You know, you think of a really good Google map. I had to use that to try to get here today. So, you know, that's a, that's a good robust technology that helps us connect. Um, and what I'm looking for is some really good robust technology that helps us connect amongst different sectors because trying to get us all under one roof to wrap around, uh, the patient is ideal, but it's going to take us some time to get there. However, we all have our own ways of collecting information and uh, documenting what we're noticing and doing assessments. So, you know, in the world of mental health with kids, the only way to get these assessments done is through talking. Other areas of medicine, if I'm going to make a diagnosis, I can go to my lab work, I can go to imaging, but the vast majority of mental health diagnosis is through talking. It's a lot of talking for clients, okay? So if you've got a really good assessment from a psychologist at school, they probably talk to parents for a couple of hours. They probably talk to that child for a few hours, talk to you. And then that document gets housed, you know, by the custodian of the document, which is probably the education system because they did that. Or same thing goes for me. If I do a bunch of healthcare interventions and take a bunch of information, I now... I'm a custodian of that information. If we can sign some information sharing agreements and get consent from our patients to share, and the vast majority of time I see patients assume I have their information. Mm -hmm. They assume I'm the family doctor and I can access everything. It's right in my computer. And to some regard, yes, particularly things that I've ordered I can access and, and then other healthcare things in terms of like medical care, like lab work and imaging that other people have ordered, I can look that up. But if a school has ordered a psychoed assessment, I can't look that up. The school owns it. So the technology that could allow us to safely share that information behind the scenes, collect the consent from the parents to make sure that everybody's okay with us sharing this information um, then at least we're not talking about duplication of services. And that assessment has been both useful to the school, but then also useful to us when we're looking at, you know, how can we better treat this patient? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and potentially vice versa. Some of what we're doing at, at this, if the client is okay or the patient is okay with us sharing some information with the school, um, it can become sensitive for people. But whatever they'll allow us to consent to release, then you can continue to do that detective work with us of how are these interventions, you know, helping or hindering the student. Yeah. Are there any other big trends in health or in research that you're seeing that you think teachers and people in the education system should be aware of? Anything new that maybe um, that's interesting to you and you think that might actually help our work as well? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. You know, there's... um. 
there's increased talk around kind of what we call trauma informed care or how, um, what happens in your childhood affects your health and the rest of your life. And, um, this is called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. We're going to call it that from now on. And this research actually isn't that new. It was done in the nineties and it was done in healthcare. And it was done by an internal medicine doctor that was seeing um, patients who were struggling with severe obesity. And uh, Dr. Vince Felitti, I understand, was the doctor who came up with the questionnaire. And what he noticed is that a number of people who were struggling with chronic diseases in adulthood had pretty difficult childhoods when he took a what we call a social history. Many of them had been abused either emotionally, sexually, or physically by their parents or other trusted adults. And so he started to quantify this. He came up with a questionnaire that he gave all his patients through there. And I mean, so you're talking a study of, I think, up to 15,000 people that received this questionnaire about common adverse childhood events. And what they were able to prove was that the, the more adverse childhood events you had of either abuse or neglect, it positively correlated with future health issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, depression, suicidality, substance abuse. And, you know, to people who have worked with people, this probably isn't a big surprise, but other findings too, diseases like coronary artery disease, cancer, COPD, it became a predictor. Your ACE score became a predictor of adverse chronic diseases in adulthood. Um, and this has become a big area of research now in neuroscience and how our brains develop and what type of environment we need to develop in, in a healthy way to live a healthy life into adulthood. So this has huge kind of public health, uh, implications for people. So, you know, how do you bring that into the classroom for a teacher? First of all, I want to tell you, you're a positive adult role model in their lives if you care. So if you're willing to listen and you're willing to try to teach and to do something for your students, um, you can really make a big difference. And healthy interactions with youth, positive interactions, encouraging interactions with youth is important. You don't get to substitute and be someone's guardian if, if, you don't get to go past your role as a teacher, but that role as a teacher is important. My role as a doctor is important, but the role as parents and guardians and caregivers around that child is the most important predictor for their lifelong health. So supporting parents to do their best job that they possibly can for their children is is important. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's an important message to know that if we want uh, great learning and great communities to live in, we can support each other and, and we often work with parents and they often seek a teacher's advice about certain things and we can support them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that is really applicable. Now I'm going to get into a little bit more of teaching and learning. And, and although I know you're not a teacher, I, I still think that you do a lot of teaching. I mean, your role as a physician and, and how you, you help people to, to know about themselves and maybe some of the things that they're dealing with, with their health. And I want to know, is there something about teaching and learning that you believe is true that maybe other people would disagree with you on? Um, 
It's kind of a provocative question. I don't know how much people would disagree. It was interesting in medicine. I would say it's very much because I teach, right? I have residents that come through my clinic and um, it's like an apprenticeship to become a physician. You do four years of medical school and some of that has more kind of classroom-based teaching and then you go on the wards, but then you do your residency. So once you choose your specialty outside of medical school, then you go and establish yourself as a surgeon or internal medicine and with me, family medicine. So I have family medicine residents that come through our clinic and you know, the best way to say it is it's an apprenticeship for about two years where we teach them how to actually translate what they've learned in medical school and talk to people, teach them about their illnesses, order the right tests and understand the whole system. Um, so in that, I think to be a good teacher, you have to do your best to model the professionalism um, behind what you're doing. So I think your attitude has to be congruent at all times. So the way that you talk to your patients and talk about patients, and maybe this parlays into teaching the culture Absolutely. that you translate. So, and it goes all the way down through your organization. So if you talk poorly about your patients, if you talk poorly about your students, mm -hmm. um, you're going to teach your colleagues to do the same. If you teach, if you treat people with the same respect at all times, I think you can teach that level of respect to always be there and then your staff and it just sets the whole culture. So I think that there's all sorts of ways that you can teach people that teachers will know better than I do. But one thing I often think about is um, what is the example I'm setting as a professional? Um, because that's what wears off on people. Yeah. When you think of the term, um, master physician. So a physician or a family doctor who is, is at the top of their game. Um, who or what comes to mind? What are some of the qualities or some of the attributes of a person who, who's got this um, medicine thing figured out? That's a good question. Um, you know, through our licensing, the College of Family Physicians, um, you get to be certified with the College of Family Physicians after two years of residency. Then you get your, what we call your CCFP. You get to have a fellowship in family medicine after 10 years of practice and showing that you've done a certain amount of CME. And I think what that shows is that it is a practice of medicine. Mm -hmm. So you are, you learn from every patient interaction and the longer you do the job, the more lived experience you have and the more you've learned. So I like that they put a time base on that recognition um, to say it's just going to take you some time to get this level of what you say, like a master. And again, that kind of comes more from the apprenticeship world. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the traits that you need is, is clearly a high level of professionalism, mm -hmm. um, self-management. But I think one of the traits is for sure curiosity. I think you have to stay curious about the science behind the scenes of what you're hearing about what you're looking at and what you're educating people about because the science changes. This will frustrate patients, but sometimes what I recommended five years ago isn't going to be what I recommend today because mm -hmm. science has taught us something different. So we are scientists at heart, um, but you also have to stay curious with your patients. Uh, sometimes you think you've got the diagnosis down and you start treating it and it's not going in the direction that you and the patient had hoped. And so you have to kind of go back and then reinvestigate and stay curious with what's going on with them. So I found that to be important. I, 
I really do appreciate what you just said there because I think it plays into this concept that I love of clinical educators as well. And that's you're keeping up on the science of learning at the same time as the relationship that you have with kids and you Mm -hmm. try different things out and it doesn't work and you come back and forth and you're curious about how to move forward. So I think that you've really actually oralized or said really nicely what what I'd I'd love schools to be or teachers to be as well. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. Do you have a favorite failure or a favorite success that helped you learn some important lessons in becoming a better physician? Um, and, and I say favorite failure because I'm sure at the time it probably didn't feel uh, great. All those successes feel pretty great. But you look back and say, hey, I really, I really learned something during that time. Um, what, what might it have been and what did you learn? <laughs> That's a great question. I can tell that you're an educator and not a doctor because doctors don't like to talk about their failures. <laughs> and, and actually... You know what? That's the hard part about medicine is when we fail, people suffer. And what people really need to understand with their physicians is that it's a partnership and that if you feel that as a doctor, you have all the power to make all the decisions and to do everything and it fails, it weighs heavy on you. So, but it's important for physicians to be able to share failures or mistakes so that the system can learn and that they can learn and grow. Um, and, and sometimes it can be humorous, but sometimes it can be devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I'll share with you is an example of a failure in communication. And I, this patient really taught me a lot. And I had, I had a patient in my practice who, you know, had a number of looking back, uh, ACE scores and she was in middle age and she was just always angry. In fact, she always started out her appointments with, I hate doctors. <laughs> I hate doctors. They do nothing for me. And I mean, I was her doctor. And so every single time we started with, I hate doctors, they do nothing for me. I'm like, oh man, I'm really trying. Like we've tried a lot of things, you know, and this becomes frustrating as you can imagine. And so one day she started out and she was really mad that I'd done nothing for her. I felt like I had tried to do quite a few things for her. And there comes to a point with a patient where if you can't make a therapeutic alliance, because you see it so differently like this, you have to end the relationship. So I was, you know, I was to the point where I was about to end this relationship to say, you know what, I actually have tried everything I can. I'm sorry you feel that way. But I'd actually, and I just said to her flat out, I'm going to actually fire you as a patient because you're so mad and we're not actually getting to any of the care that we need to, but I just want to understand better what's going on before that happens. Like, please just stop telling me how much you hate doctors and what can we do? And so she started crying and she told me her story and her story was pretty devastating. She had been, her first husband had abused her for about 25 years and had abused her children. And she had been in and out of medical care from this abuse, but no one had ever believed her. So she'd even been to the emergency room after she'd been strangled, after she'd been punched, and people would send her home to her husband. Um, she had called children's services about her children being uh, abused by him, and they hadn't kept them safe. And this lasted, and I think even her family didn't believe her. So she eventually was able to escape to a women's shelter. She eventually, you know, he eventually left the picture. And from when I met her, she had a new husband who seemed really nice. I actually didn't know any of this story. It was hard to ever get to it because we were always in the cycle of no one was doing anything for her. 
So when I heard this whole story, she just said to me, I don't trust anyone in the medical system to help me. They never have. And then I thought, aha, Mm -hmm. I understand now. You have a really traumatic history of asking for help and not getting it. And now you have some, basically she hadn't seen anyone for years and she was desperate to get help. But what I needed to do to help her was do some pretty intimate physical exam stuff. We had to get some investigations done. I need to send her to some specialists. But beyond all of this, no trust in the system at all, I couldn't get anywhere. So after hearing her story for about a half an hour, I had a much better understanding of where she was coming from. And we could kind of start with a new relationship and say, I understand now why you don't feel that you've been helped. And I got to sort of hammer through this piece by piece by piece. And there were physical issues. There were mental health issues. There was chronic pain issues. I eventually, she was eventually able to trust some male physicians as well. And she saw a chronic pain doctor and she saw a psychiatrist. And over a time of about four to five years, she said to me, I finally see light and feel hope. I finally look forward to my life. She was horribly depressed. She was suicidal. She was living in chronic pain. And she had a number of other chronic diseases that we were just plugging away at. I didn't actually think she would ever feel light and hope. I was, I was feeling a bit hopeless with her that she would get there. So it really proved to me that getting the whole story and trying to partner with patients can make a really big difference. But some people have every right not to trust certain systems. And sometimes you are just the person who represents the system. You're not the person who inflicted the pain. But if people are coming at you super hostile and you don't know where it's coming from, it's usually from a painful past. And and then to not personalize that is important. Yeah. What a great story. (laughs) Um. I have just some quick ones, some quick, okay. quick, quick uh, answers and quick questions. Do you have a favorite health-related app or website? Uh, yes, the uh, seven-minute workout. <laughs> seven-minute workout. I, I have that app. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, great. Uh, do you have a book that you quote or refer to or have marked up the most or maybe that you that you recommend to your patients the most? In terms of youth mental health, um, I think a really good book – that helped me with my own children and speaking to youth is a book by Dr. Ross Green called Raising Human Beings. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a clinical psychologist and he just has a great approach of talking to kids, whether they're young kids or older kids. And he has some real life examples of really tough cases Mm -hmm. in it. Um, And I found it to be very helpful. And I think he's the one who came up with the quotation of kids do well if they can. Um, and so I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, I love Ross Green. I love Ross Green. What's, um, what's something that you do every day or most days that keeps you healthy and well? Um, exercise. Yeah. I try to exercise every day. That's why I kind of giggle about the seven minute workout because <laughs> some days it's just seven minutes, yep. but actually the research suggests <laughs> <laughs> There's evidence that that seven minute workout can make a difference. Um, but no, I find that, uh, exercise we talk about, you know, in terms of just healthy lifestyle and weight loss, or maybe you're hit meeting fitness goals, but getting out and the more chances you can decide to move your body rather than to be sedentary. Um, it actually helps your mental health quite a bit as well. And it helps your ability to concentrate and to think. So just moving, I don't care what you do, but just move your body. I love it. 
What's an organization or a person who inspires you? Uh, I was greatly impacted myself through an organization called Young Life. It's a faith-based youth mentorship organization. And my, I have a good friend named Kathy who inspires me. Um, she works for Young Life and she has brought to Canada Young Life Capernaum, which is uh, working with kids with uh, cognitive disabilities and bringing them into the program. And so she's had to do a lot of adaptations to what Young Life does with kids to make space for uh, kids with either either physical or cognitive disabilities. And um, she's been through some of her own personal pain herself. And to see her create this program has been really cool to see how much it benefits these marginalized youth, but also how much it benefits the other youth in the program to have this integration. So I found that to be really inspiring. Um, let's talk about maybe some of the future pro projects that you've got going. Uh, what's, what's next for you? What are some of the questions that you're looking at um, tackling or what are some of the projects you're looking at taking on? Well, we talked about this youth mental health hub and it's been, there's been a lot of learning and planning and we're just getting to the point where, where we're going to start implementing uh, some of the concepts of it. So um, we're from our primary care network, we're going to start a youth mental health clinic that's going to have primary care doctors. One of them is myself and then um, a few of my colleagues who've done some extra training. And we're going to see patients aged 11 to 25. And we're going to work uh, with a psychologist and a social worker. And we're going to try to partner our services as much as we can with what Albert Health Services provides in the in the community as well. And um, in the fall, when school starts up again, hopefully we'll get the referral technology fired up and be able to share information from the schools so that when we're doing our assessments, um, we understand what's going on at school too. And hopefully we can get you some information back. So I'm really excited after kind of a year's worth of meeting and planning to actually start implementing some of what we learned and as we know that things can get uh, challenging and you don't know exactly what the um, problems will be until you bump into them. But I, I think the spirit of cooperation has really been there amongst our community partners. And I'm really excited to see how this goes. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking to us about mental health and, and, and all the other things uh, related to health. I, uh, I think you, you shared some really good lessons and um, I know that there are some teachers out there who are going to, going to benefit from that. So thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Dr. Suzanne Squires. If you want to follow her work, you can go to her clinic website at westgroveclinic.ca or westviewpcn.ca. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Assiniboine, Nakoda, Stoney, and the Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let's continue to live well and respect this land. Thanks. We'll be back soon with our next episode.